The great litany which we opened the service with today was written for times of war, very specifically, for times of conflict and war. I was in a conversation with a liturgist once who didn't want us to use it um, in the church that we were in at the time um, because he said we didn't understand it. It was a, it was a litany sung or chanted um, in England, specifically in written for England, as it went into war. And so he understood it as this oppressive colonial thing. And I told him, he was right, that is its history, but in, that in this country, um, one, we're not the established church, so we don't quite have the heft of what would have happened in England at that time um, when, the, when this litany was created. But in our country, it is most often used one, for this service, but also in times of war in despair frankly, that is its history. It's very appropriate that it's used today um, when we find that there is war in Europe. And people have pointed to, um, to the fact and they're right that there is war all over this planet. Um, vulnerable people live in war all the time and often because of the actions of powerful nations like ours that have no implications for us here. Um, and a part of what we're recognizing right now is there is war in Europe, which has very specific implications for us. And so it was very, very appropriate um, and timely that that litany was chanted here today. Here be monsters or dragons. To mark the unknown map makers in Europe at the same time that litanies like this were being written used to write often in the corners of maps. I'm sure you've seen these in historic documents. Here be dragons or here be monsters again, usually on the far corners, to mark those places that were unknown to them, but places that must exist, the places their navigators or explorers had not yet been, but of course were there, just beyond the known horizon. And our readings today take us to some of those places on the map, the place of monsters and dragons, just beyond what is known, to where faith and the adventures and the great questions of life invite us all. So in that first reading, we hear something like what some call a first creed of the ancient Hebrew people, and you'll hear it again in Hebrews. My ancestor was a wandering Aramean. They mean Abraham, right? We are a people whose spiritual heritage is defined by the journey from home and hearth and garden and family. The starting point is the journey out, the world that God calls us into. Abraham leaves his home. Today's reading is reminding us to come to the place that we too are going, they say in the reading, the place of following and discerning and seeking wilderness unknown places where the dragons are. Jesus goes into that same place of seeking in the readings today, propelled there by his baptism. It says a very Holy Spirit drives him there and there he tests and questions everything, or he is tested and questioned about everything. And as a result, declares himself to us today as one who will not be about power or comfort as it exists in this world, but neither will he fully walk away from it. He does not return to a peaceful life in the fields of Galilee or Nazareth, that's not how the story goes. From this interior journey of 40 days, he will walk out of the wilderness into a lifetime of journey, 
He literally walks through the rest of the stories of the Gospels, walking finally into Jerusalem itself and that high mountain before walking with his cross to Golgotha. Here be dragons, Father, you can imagine he might have prayed, inside of me, among my friends, around all of us. A photograph of the mosaic at the front of the Sophia Cathedral in Kiev, which you've probably all seen, it's been floating around on social media. The cathedral in Kiev was built in 1037, 1037. And it's been making the rounds in social media because it is so touching and dear. And frankly, there's so little we can do but watch from here. The Sophia Cathedral in Kiev, like the Hagia Sophia, which means holy wisdom, Sophia is wisdom, um, the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, these are built as Orthodox cathedrals, Eastern Orthodox, filled with mosaics. In Sophia, the personification of holy wisdom, which is an ancient theological concept, it is in the Bible from the beginning, the breath of God when God speaks, those first word, wisdom, ruach, walks in the marketplace in Proverbs, and there she, she is a woman in Proverbs. We are to seek wisdom, the Hebrew poets tell us. She is shrewd, the poets tell us, loving, a maker of possibilities in the world. Wisdom in the Kiev Cathedral is personified in a mosaic. She is dressed in deep blue robes, red shoes, I'm not sure why, rich gold scarves, arms and orans, so like this, the posture of prayer that we still use today before the Eucharist, two-dimensional, on a field of gold in the apse of the cathedral, so like, like our good shepherd up there. It is a symbol that seems to hold the complexity of this time, this ancient image of the city of Kiev, its ancient sophistication and history and its current helplessness. Hands up, fighting, fearless, and all of our prayers for Ukrainians fighting for their home, for Russians trapped in war, for some sensible solution quickly, as we see again that the whims of tyrants play out in the bodies of ordinary people. Holy Wisdom Sophia prays for her people, and how powerful when it seems that the chaos at the corners of the map are at her door. As we consider what makes a Holy Lent for you this year, I invite you to consider Sophia, Holy Wisdom, as your companion in these troubled times on our collective journeys. In the readings that we have just heard, Jesus goes out to the wild places, driven by a Holy Spirit, maybe Holy Wisdom. This is where we get the she that you will hear some of us say in the creeds for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Breath all gendered as female in the Hebrew. Today's gospel reads that Jesus, immediately after his baptism, goes to that wild place, the wilderness, a border place, like out there outside of our gates on Cortland on most mornings, that place for people for whom there is no home, for people for whom there has been war outside or inside their bodies or in their neighborhood, wait. The first of the many border places that Jesus will go to and out there was probably, were probably others for whom life was not working out as it should as well. He journeys out to know more about this God that has driven him out there, this spirit that has claimed him in his baptism. It is actually a deeply troubling little portion. 
Our sweet Jesus faces, faces death and sin, his temptations like a vision quest, a test of himself. And there he finds not God ready to meet him, but the tempter. He is tempted to end his fast, to have authority in this world, and to demonstrate his authority to the authorities, to eat because he's hungry. Classic temptations, to show his power and his self-sufficiency, to make the rest of the story about himself. The gospel writers at their worst do that for us. We get those passages saying, Jesus just said this confusing thing, my friends, because he wanted to confuse them, right? You know those parts of the Bible. Instead of leaving us with the confusion, because it is confusing, where maybe we could learn something about ourselves as Jesus does in today's story. So these days, are we not all spending a lot of our time making sure we provide for ourselves and our loved ones and maybe even generations to come with their daily bread and their vaccinations? And are we not all weighing up the influence we can have in the world and how we will exercise that, of course, for the good? And are we not daily wrestling with who we are in the grand scheme of things and how others might see us? Again, of course, for the good, we are good says the tempter. The classic temptations of everyone living the lives we have all been given. Back when there was a crisis of detention of asylum seekers at our borders, almost all victims of war, I took a few trips there with colleagues from the place I was working at the time to see if we could be a part of supporting the Episcopal Diocese in the parts of Mexico that were helping to try to help the migrants detained on their side of the border. So on one of these trips, we went to San Diego, really to Tijuana, but it's kind of the same city, right? It extends out over the border. And the quickest way that I found to do that was to fly to San Diego on a direct flight from New York and to walk over, which made perfect sense when I was doing it on my Google map and setting up the flight, as you do. You land at the airport, you take the Uber, you get pretty close to the border, you walk. It's all sensible. And then I was going to get to the other side and take a taxi to the hotel. It sort of worked out that way, right? I took a car service to the border and I walked with lots of other people who walk back and forth across that hot border every day, twice a day for work or school or shopping. I waved my passport and found myself very soon face to face in Mexico with camps of people outside in that wilderness between where they had come from and what they thought the United States could do for them. In sight of the subdivisions on the other side of the border, basically the most southern parts of San Diego, the one that I could wave my passport and return to for lunch if I wanted. In the course of those few days in which we walked through encampment after encampment, which is what war creates, inside and sometimes outside, um, inside these warehouses full of camping tents. I'd never seen anything like it. And then often outside, as you've seen in encampments of people who were unhoused, we met people from all over the world. I was not ready for that. I was particularly struck by a man from Congo. As you can imagine, he stood out in that camp in Tijuana. He could not have been 25. His family, he said, had sent him off so that he would not be recruited or kidnapped into the militia or into conflict and die where they were from. And that was the story of so many in those rooms, here in the Americas, in the Middle East, in Africa. 
I met young men from Haiti and Pakistan. That young man from Congo just looked tired and confused and so young and sun-exposed, which is what I imagine Jesus might have look, would have looked like in that story that we read today. The great questions of the world on his face, he had seen the monsters, he had been there. And yes, there are dragons, his face seemed to say. At the end of one of those visits of a campsite, so close to that checkpoint where some of us would cross later, so close that you could see the face of the guards, we were in a field of bright little camping tents, the kind we all take on little trips, not meant for the duty they were doing. Full of every kind of person, LGBTQ refugees, lots of single women, lots of kids. One of my colleagues and I literally just got lost for a moment, just so much suffering that we had been watching day after day. So we just stood kind of frozen by the juxtaposition of the order on the American side that you could see through that wall and its slats and that they could see from where they were and their strange stuck desperation where they were. There was no way they would be crossing that border. We all knew that. They hoped differently like so many of us watching on our TVs and phones this past week. How can it be that we are so helpless? My friend Mark, who is a character who I hope to invite to this pulpit at some point, and he probably won't get in it, he'll be down there. Um, he had a bag of chocolates in his backpack. I don't know why, those little ones that you have for Halloween. And he just started to hand them out. And I remember thinking, which I often do with Mark, this isn't gonna work out well, right? <laughs> People are clearly hungry here. It's a classic Mark move to offer what he had, even though it was clearly useless and might even cause a little bit of trouble. So people started to gather around him, as you do when someone's handing out chocolates. And they were gently pressing in, one saying very sweetly in Spanish to Mark, if they could have just one more, one for the friend who had hurt themselves and was not feeling well and had had to stay back in the tent, but liked chocolate. Just one, we have one more. It looked a lot like what communion, I think, is meant to be. The gentle press of the people, the person with the beautiful thing that doesn't really do what it's supposed to do. It's not really bread, after all. It won't help much if you're actually hungry, except to remind you that you are hungry. Because there are dragons, friends, monsters, really, swirling within us and around us, and the power of God is our solidarity with one another, that we stay that we open our eyes, that we're not afraid to look, that we keep our hearts loving, we offer what we can, we say what is true, we invoke the spirit of holy wisdom for all of us, not just to demonstrate the power of one, but to offer to all the true way of being, in deepest knowing, solidarity with the suffering of this planet, in humble love with God, in passionate working together for justice. As Mark ran out of his chocolates that day, as I knew he would, and our helplessness alongside the beauty and deep solidarity of those in that camp, staying together, sat together in my confused mind, the Archbishop of Mexico stepped a little further in and listened as person after person told them their stories, hopeless stories, and he began to lead them in prayer, Oremos, Padre Nuestro, he said, our Father. Like Jesus to the disciples panicked in all of their uselessness in story after story, for there be monsters, Lord, temptations 
and powers and holy wisdom pray for us for this journey.